Chapter 15. Crises The meltdown of the New York Stock Exchange in October 1929 sent shockwaves through the world economy. Central Europe was particularly affected. Corporate profits in Austria had been squeezed under the combined impact of increased taxation and labor union power. As a consequence, private entrepreneurs were increasingly unable to attract the capital needed to cope with the changes. Moreover, the economy of Germany and Austria had come to rely increasingly on public expenditure, which in turn was financed through a steady stream of U.S. and French credit. The main players in this process were not the federal governments, but second-level authorities and municipalities. Loyal to the prevailing socialist ideology of the time, city mayors had used post-war foreign loans as a means to communalize firms, especially in the field of transport and public utilities. The performance of these companies plummeted under the new public management, but this was compensated for by ever more credit from abroad. Until 1928, the inflationary policies of the capitalist West could be relied on for promoting the growth and perseverance of the Central European welfare states. Then the June 1928 stabilization of the francs stopped capital exports from France, and the volume of new foreign loans floated in the United States dropped by some 50% when the Federal Reserve started increasing its interest rates. The party was over. One of Mises' professional duties was to help attract capital to Austria. In the international meetings for the semi-public comer, he represented his country and sought to protect its interests by promoting Austria's reputation as a good credit risk. For example, in late March and early April 1930, Mises went on a mission to London to promote an English-language brochure that Hayek's Institute for Business Cycle Research had prepared for the Cummers Propaganda Department, what we would now call a public relations office in London. Mises used the occasion to meet his friends at LSE, although he had not announced the trip to them much in advance, if at all. Thus he missed Robbins, who had been out of town for some time, and then tried to meet him for lunch, but met Meyendorf in King's College on Monday, April 1st. Meyendorf probably introduced him to Alistair Phillips from Trinity College, Dublin. They had also planned to meet Hernshaw, but the latter was not in London. He was also on a private mission. He had to see Margaret again. She had never written after leaving Vienna the year before. He somehow learned her address, and they met on his very first evening. She recalled, From the first look, from the first moment, everything was as it had been before. We both knew it never would change. A few months later, she returned to Vienna, private mission accomplished. Mises' official mission was one of his less successful undertakings. After the Wall Street crash in October 1929, U.S. loans quickly became unavailable for Austria and Germany. Even Mises' persuasiveness could not prevent the crisis from spilling over to Austria. It soon turned out that the Austrian entrepreneurs, crippled by a decade of communal socialism, labor unions, and soaring taxes, were unable to provide relief. Stock markets plummeted all over Europe, and within a year reached an all-time low. As usually happens in a financial crisis, all sorts of real and self-appointed experts advertised their plans to solve the problem. These plans invariably involved increased government intervention. The great panacea was meddling with the gold standard. Several well-intentioned amateurs sent their reform proposals to Mises. Not one of them had actually studied any of his writings. 
They just sought a renowned monetary expert to give leverage to their ideas. One of them actually proposed a currency based on electricity. Mises usually replied, and in one case even said he would welcome a publication of the gentleman's proposal. A public discussion of these views would be instructive and help to bring about a solution to the present monetary problems. This was no idle talk. He sometimes arranged such discussions himself. A case in point was Charlotte von Reichmann, a young economist from the University of Frankfurt. Unlike the cranks, she had actually read Mises' monetary theory. In fact, she had devoured all of his books and admired them very much. Still in a doctoral dissertation, she had advocated a substantially different inflationary point of view on the nature of credit, claiming that even paper money credit was true capital. When she sent her dissertation to Mises in December 1931 and solicited his comments, she was quite surprised to receive a very appreciative response, plus an invitation to give a talk to the Nationalökonomische Gesellschaft. She could not believe her eyes when she saw she was invited to give a talk, and her teachers laughed at her, saying it could not possibly be a serious invitation. Mises was only being polite to a student of his friends from the Frankfurt Circle, but Mises was serious. When he thanked her for accepting the invitation to Vienna, she exclaimed, But it is I who have to thank you for letting me rise, as if through the touch of a magic wand from the mass of nameless scientists. In 1930, the Austrian government asked Mises to join an ad hoc economic commission to study the causes of the difficulties that plagued the country. Permanent high unemployment... In 1929, some 200,000, or 14% of the workers in industry and commerce were without jobs, numerous bankruptcies, idle production facilities, and the lack of profitability for a large number of Austrian businesses. Mises was one of the three members of the anonymous editorial committee that eventually issued the final report of December 1930. Richard von Schuller was the official president of the committee, but he did not take part in the writing. The other two members were Edmund Pallar, a labor union leader and secretary of the Chamber of Labor, and Engelbert Dolfus, a rising leader of the Christian Socialist Party who would later become Austrian Chancellor. The report detailed the factors that weakened the competitiveness of the Austrian economy. It pointed out that the inflation years, 1914 to 1925, had produced an inflationist mentality in the Austrian population. Continual increases of prices and incomes were now considered to be the normal state of affairs. This mentality conflicted with stable or declining selling prices on world markets, to which Austria was exposed after the introduction of the gold exchange standard in 1925. Once on the standard, wholesale prices could be increased only for local products and only to a limited extent, while production costs continued their increase. Taxation had risen by more than 30%, payments for the public social security systems by more than 50%, and the wage rates of the 1.3 million industrial workers by some 24%. The increase of production costs had squeezed corporate profits, which in turn made it impossible to attract the foreign capital direly needed for a quicker adjustment of Austrian industry. The committee therefore recommended a reduction of public expenditure and of public revenues as well as renegotiation of wage contracts in order to reduce total labour costs. Mises was not happy with the report. Neither were the other members of the committee. The report was widely perceived as a manifesto of Manchester capitalism. Mises's hand in it was obvious. The author states that Mises's views had a major impact on Austrian policy debates in the early years of the crisis. 
He thought it failed to identify the main culprits, the welfare state and the labor unions. He used his next opportunity to set the record straight, writing under his own name. He also put the discussion of crisis-related topics on the agenda of his private seminar, which in the academic year 1930-1931 dealt for the first time in many years exclusively with economic problems. Similarly, in the winter semester, the university seminar dealt with the information, maintenance, and consumption of capital. The summer semester was to deal with methodological problems, but it was unexpectedly cancelled because Mises had to travel to the United States for a meeting of the International Chamber of Commerce. These sessions were far more satisfying for Mises than were the public debates into which he had been drawn by his reputation as Austria's greatest monetary theorist. During the crisis, he confronted some of the more influential money cranks in public debate. He argued that the Great Depression was more lengthy and severe than any form of bust, because it resulted from the combined effect of inflation and the regimentation of businesses. In one of his public appearances in late October 1930, Mises debated Robert Eisler, an Austrian economic historian affiliated with the Paris office of the League of Nations. Mises apparently also gave another public talk in Vienna on Monday, December 1st, 1930. Eisler had written a book on the history of money and taught courses on his monetary policy schemes at the Sorbonne in Paris and the prestigious private Institut Universitaire des Hautitudes Internationales in Geneva. He advocated the entire program of anti-crisis policies that later became known as Keynesianism. Eisler claimed that the post-1929 crisis had resulted from previous deflationary policies and, in particular, from the deflationary gold standard. In his view, the crisis should be overcome by a simple change in the technique of international currency management, the abolition of any form of gold standard, and the creation of an international fiat money system. This would solve various problems in the labor market, agriculture, housing, and other fields. It would finance huge public works, give sufficient wages and old-age pensions to workers, and guarantee extraordinary bull markets for entrepreneurs and bankers. It would even appease social antagonisms within society. No written account of the Mises-Eisler debate remains, but Mises' argument can be inferred from a public lecture that he delivered a few months later to the plenary meeting of the Deutsche Hauptverband der Industrie, the Association of German Industrialists in Czechoslovakia. The title of the lecture was The Causes of the World Economic Crisis. He delivered it on February 28, 1931, and it was soon published under a slightly different title in a major economics series that also featured many socialist and interventionist analyses of the crisis. On February 19, 1931, Mises had approached Moore's CEO, Paul Siebeck, for the publication of his lecture in Czechoslovakia in the series Recht und Staat, Siebeck was glad to accept this proposal, and by March 2nd, they had agreed on the terms. Mises would obtain 30 complimentary copies, 80 marks per 16 pages, and the total number of copies in any edition would not exceed 2,000. Mises then also changed the title of the work from The Causes of the World Economic Crisis to The Causes of the Economic Crisis. In mid-April, shortly before leaving for the United States, he was through with the revisions. On top of his 30 complimentary copies, he ordered another 25 copies, 
and had 20 out of these 55 copies sent directly to their recipients. The money, 170 marks, was wired to his post-check account. The Causes of the Great Depression In a mere 34 pages, Mises presented a concise and penetrating analysis of the crisis. He pointed out that the market economy was regulated by the requirement that entrepreneurs satisfy consumer preferences. Inflation disrupts this self-regulation of the market. It induces businessmen to overestimate the possibilities for profitable investment so that they make bad investment decisions and squander resources. These errors became apparent in a crisis, the U.S. stock market crash of 1929 in this case. The market participants now revise their plans and adopt more sober views on economic conditions. Employment opportunities and capital goods are shifted from the unsustainable production project to those firms and industries that are now most important to consumers and therefore most profitable. The unemployed find new jobs at lower wages, production resumes, and the economy grows again. Mises stressed that this scenario, while typical of previous business cycles, did not exactly fit the conditions of the present one. Before, there was virtually no unemployment in the boom phase, and even during the bust, unemployment and stagnation were temporary. They lasted only as long as it took market participants to find the most profitable new division of labor, but this time, Mises observed, things were markedly different, so much so that he had to adjust his business cycle theory this time, despite enormous inflation, there was no corresponding general boom economy in Europe. In light of past experience, and of our theory, one should have assumed that the crisis would therefore be milder, but is far more severe, and it seems business conditions will not improve any time soon. It would have been plausible to assume that the present bust would not be as painful as it would have been in the case of a more sweeping boom. The relatively weak boom should have induced a relatively moderate bust, but this was not the case. Why? Mises answered that the present stagnation was the combined result of two causes, layered one over the other. The current business cycle had merely aggravated the problems of unemployment and the lack of profitability, but these problems had existed and continue to exist independent of the cycle. Both the lack of profitability and unemployment are being intensified right now through the General Depression. However, in the post-war period, they have become lasting phenomena that have not disappeared entirely even in the upswing. We are confronted here with a new problem, one that cannot be answered by the theory of cyclical changes alone. What were the causes of the permanent post-war crisis? Mises argued that there were several. Each one, however, was an instance of government intervention. Mises thus explained the Great Depression by combining his theory of business cycles with his theory of interventionism. The least controversial of his candidate causes was the nefarious influence of price controls and public finance. Most economists agreed that price ceilings created shortages of consumers' goods, and that price floors resulted in unmarketable surpluses without benefiting anyone. They also accepted that the growth of the state increased the costs of production, and that taxation of capital induced capitalists to consume rather than reinvest their wealth. More controversial, however, was Mises' stance on the labor market, where he was one of the few economists with the courage to stand fast on the law of supply and demand, even as it applies to unemployment and wages. The main cause of unemployment was clear. Government supported labor unions. His opinion was already on record. 
In January 1926, the Neues Wiener Tagblatt approached Mises to get his opinion on how unemployment was to be reduced, and on March 6, 1930, the Vienna journal Welt am Morgen published Mises' advocacy of the abolition of unemployment relief. On the unhampered market, he argued, unemployment could only be a temporary phenomenon. There are probably always a certain number of job seekers, just as on the unhampered housing market there are always unoccupied apartments and apartment seekers. Today we would say that search costs cause a certain amount of natural unemployment. Five years before, in his piece on interventionism, Mises had characterized this free market unemployment as a frictional phenomenon that would not exist in a static state, that is, in equilibrium. Except for this natural residue, However, the market cleared at a wage rate resulting from a competitive demand by entrepreneurs and a competitive supply of workers. Now, this self-regulation of the market is strongly obstructed through the invention of the labor unions acting under the protection and support of government power. The labor unions seek to establish the wage rates of their members at higher than market rates. The goal the unions pursue by the use of violence. Mises went on to explain... Only those workers who belong to the union, who demand the wage rates prescribed by the union, and who do their work in the manner prescribed by the union, are permitted to work in the firms. Should the entrepreneur refuse to accept the conditions of the union, a strike ensues. Those workers who wish to work despite the union's imposed ban will be forced by acts of violence to refrain from their plan. These union tactics naturally presuppose that the government tolerates this behavior, at the least. Were it to proceed in its usual way and interfere with the criminals who abuse job-seekers and vandalize the machines and other of the entrepreneurs' facilities, then circumstances would be different, but that it has capitulated to the unions is the precise feature that characterizes the modern state. Owing to this position of power which enables them to abuse the property rights of the capitalists, as well as the human rights of workers and would-be workers, the unions can push wages above the market rate, but at this higher level it is impossible to hire all those who would have found employment otherwise. The result is unemployment and the concomitant misery of a great many people. For some time the masses might tolerate their immiseration, but sooner or later they would demand jobs. Even the unions could not resist such a large-scale popular movement, and therefore the institution of taxed-financed unemployment relief was created. He concludes, Unemployment is a permanent and mass phenomenon, results from the labor union policy of pushing up wage rates. Without unemployment relief, this policy would long since have collapsed. Unemployment relief is therefore not, as misguided public opinion assumes, a measure to alleviate emergencies caused by unemployment. To the contrary, it is an element in the chain of causes that create unemployment as a permanent and mass phenomenon in the first place. In short, the crisis had turned into a great depression through government interventionism, and this economic calamity in turn accentuated political antagonism within states and between states, spurring yet another round of destructive policies. How to break out of the vicious circle? Mises argued that ultimately there was no choice but to abolish all government intervention, and to confront union power head-on. The confrontation had better be sooner rather than later. The longer it is delayed, for example, through inflation, the more capital will be consumed, which in turn causes ever-decreasing wages and living standards. And yet this idea continued to enjoy great popularity, as Mises wrote some months after publication of his lecture to a friend in Paris. 
Today, with the exception of a dozen or two reasonable individuals, the whole world is in complete agreement on two points. Debts should remain unpaid, and the economy should be stimulated through strong inflation. Not all criticisms of his views were based on this opinion, however. Some critics charged Mises with one-sidedness. Some of his colleagues in the Kammer thought it was illegitimate to focus only on the problems of government interventionism. There was also something like entrepreneurial interventionism, which brought about very similar problems. The nub of Mises's response to this argument is contained in a letter he wrote to Kammer colleague Rudolf von Bermann, who agreed with Mises on questions of government interference, but insisted that the government was not the only agency to engage in interventionism. Bermann had been a student of Mises in 1918. Later, Mises brought the gifted Bermann into the Kammer and also maintained close private contact. In his answer, Mises stressed the particular features of the selection process of the market. It is certain that entrepreneurs, too, commit errors. This has never been denied. But the characteristic feature of the capitalist economy is that the entrepreneur diminishes his own position as entrepreneur and property owner to the very extent to which he commits errors. A capitalist social order, unhampered by interventions, therefore, provides for a permanent selection among the capitalists and entrepreneurs. Why can incompetent people in the German Reich and in Austria remain CEOs for many years? Because, in an interventionist state, these executives are selected primarily in regard to whether they enjoy a good reputation with the higher authorities, which possibly are the lower ones, and because firms that are long since bankrupt are artificially carried along for years under the pressure of all sorts of interventions. The most popular alternative explanation of unemployment in those days, at least in intellectual circles, was the one that Emil Lederer had published in the same series in which Mises' brochure appeared. Lederer ridiculed the primitive notion that, faced with unemployment, one could always restore equilibrium by reducing wage rates. He argued that the crisis was a consequence of fast technological progress, so fast indeed that an adjustment of the market participants was somehow intrinsically impossible. As long as innovations applied only to consumer products, according to Lederer, unemployment would not result. The new industries would absorb any remaining idle labor, but when innovations occurred in the form of fast technological progress, which replaced labor by cheaper machinery at such a speed that entrepreneurs could not keep pace, unemployment ensued. He had advocated these views for many years, along with the opinion that inflation can somehow create additional goods. The problem with this argument was not only its implicit premise, that entrepreneurial speculation could not possibly keep up with fast technological progress, but the even deeper assumption that technological progress could somehow take place independent of entrepreneurs. In a chapter that Mises contributed to a festschrift for the Dutch professor C. Averain Stuart, he discussed why the very idea of technological progress outpacing adjustments was completely baseless. Mises pointed out that capital was inherently conservative in the sense that the value of the existing capital structure forced the entrepreneurs constantly to weigh its maintenance against its displacement. It is not the case that any new technology merely by virtue of being technologically superior to those presently in use would displace the older ones. Such a complete replacement would occur only if it were warranted by market prices. While Lederer, Conrad, and others had tried to counter Mises' analysis of the causes of the crisis by proposing alternative explanations, other economists confronted his main thesis head-on.
They criticized Mises' argument that in an unhampered economy nothing prevents the clearing of the market through price adjustments. Erich Carrel claimed that each change of supply and demand would induce cumulative Vixelian effects that amplified the initial disequilibrium. And Wilhelm Röpke argued, In the present phase of the crisis, it seems to me it is wrong to expect that a reduction of the level of wages could re-establish equilibrium. This is wrong because, given the total paralysis of investment, each reduction of prices and incomes would lead to a continued sterilization of means of payment in the form of an increase of the liquidity of the banking system, and thus to an extended disequilibrium. Mises and his fellow travelers apparently do not sufficiently take account of the fact that today we have monstrous productive reserves that are unused. In other words, we have a gigantic capital surplus that requires credit expansions to become visible. For this reason, it is not correct that government investment would deprive the private economy of its means. The paradoxical fact, which cannot be grasped on the basis of purely static ideas, is that the means of the private economy would thereby be multiplied. Mises had anticipated this line of argument in The Causes of the Economic Crisis. He noticed that some economists had come up with a new theory of how inflation could be beneficial. These economists knew full well that unemployment resulted from excessive wage rates, but rather than confronting the unions with the demand to stop their harmful practices, they suggest to cheat the unions. Mises summarized the argument and identified its crucial flaw. In the next inflation, nominal wages shall not be changed, which would be equivalent to a reduction of real wage rates. This blithely assumes that in the next boom, the unions will not demand further wage increases, but quietly contemplate a reduction of real wages. It was not reasonable to expect such union behavior. Mises' refutation of the new pro-inflation argument was grounded in common sense, and by analogy it also applied to the owners of all other monstrous productive reserves that are unused, as Röpke had claimed. It was unreasonable to assume that these owners would quietly contemplate a reduction of the real prices they obtained for selling or renting out their resources. But in the heated atmosphere of the early 1930s, with growing economic problems and a ruling statist ideology presenting government action as a panacea, reasonable argument was rare and dissenters were highly unpopular. As one reviewer of the causes of the economic crisis explained, the labor unions have become so powerful and such an important political factor in state and public opinion, that nobody ventures to tell the truth. Neither the journals, which seek to avoid being accused of antisocial sympathies, nor the government, which is afraid of becoming unpopular and of exposing itself to the unfettered demagoguery of all these parties that, not surprisingly, attract the masses with their bellicose cries against any reduction of wages. The plague of political correctness existed well before the end of the twentieth century. Some of Mises' critics could not help admiring his courageous stance faced with overwhelming opposition. Eugen Altschur, while calling Mises one of the most extreme representatives of liberalism, admitted that he was unafraid to argue consistently. Another reviewer said, The Vienna professor Mises, who has been called the last knight of liberalism, fights indefatigably against government intervention in the market process. Even an otherwise fearless ally like Fritz Wolfholm criticized him for stressing labor union intervention as the primary factor responsible for the crisis. Wolfram would have preferred Mises to stress other factors, such as price controls, because everybody is better at recognizing a fault in others, and, after all, our purpose must be to enlighten the broad masses. 
enlightenment of the broad masses. Often, Mises felt that it was precisely the elites who were in need of more light. A case in point was his 1931 trip to the United States and Canada, where he took part in a Congress of the International Chamber of Commerce, ICC, and met many other colleagues and economists. The trade policy of the United States was one of the top problems discussed at the ICC meeting. In June 1930, the U.S. Congress had passed, and President Hoover had signed into law the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act, which authorized the highest tariffs on imports of agricultural products and manufactured items in the history of the United States. Within a year, it was already obvious that the act was devastating for international trade. It protected the farmers and manufacturers who produced for domestic markets, but hurt the consumers and farmers and manufacturers who produced for foreign markets. It undermined the international gold exchange standard. The American political leadership would not admit this. The President, Congress, and the American representatives at the ICC meeting were firmly committed to the cause of what some of them called the New Economics, rescuing the capitalist economy through more government intervention, fighting the disease by torturing the patient. A few months later, Hoover signed the 1932 Revenue Act, which brought about the largest peacetime increase of tax rates in the history of the United States, but this did not raise the absolute amount of taxes collected and did not keep Hoover from losing re-election at the end of that year. Starting in 1933, the new president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, would intensify the New Deal policies that had begun with Smoot-Hawley. At the 1931 Washington meeting of the ICC, the interventionist spirit that produced these policies was evident. Mises wrote in correspondence, At the Congress I saw again how difficult it is today to battle against increasing protectionism. The U.S. government and political parties energetically oppose all attempts to impose a moderation of U.S. tariffs. What I saw in America was not very pleasant. The official circles of the United States hold fast to a policy of high tariffs. To be certain, the United States pursues the most pernicious interventionist ideas in its domestic and foreign economic policies. But the situation in Austria was certainly no better, and declined quickly. In March, at the general meeting of the stockholders of Österreichische Nationalbank, Mises had publicly pointed out that the bank had succeeded in stabilizing the exchange rate of the shilling. The meeting took place on March 20, 1931. That was probably the best thing that could be said about Austrian finance, but he knew that grave problems lay ahead. Several times he had rejected executive positions with some of the major banks because he believed they were bankrupt and it was only a matter of time before this state of bankruptcy would become apparent. In early May 1931, the day of reckoning came. The default of Austria's largest bank, the Rothschild-dominated Kreditanstalt, put the Austrian payments system into immediate jeopardy. Anselm von Rothschild had founded the Kreditanstalt in 1855 as a public-private venture to stimulate economic development. Its difficulties in 1931 were essentially due to the fact that, two years before, the Rothschild family had given in to demands from the Austrian government to save the semi-public Bodenkreditanstalt after it had been subject to a bank run of several weeks. Merging with this bankrupt institution proved to be too much, even for the financial acumen of Louis von Rothschild, who owned some 30% of the Kreditanstalt. Upon his return to Vienna, Mises had to decline several invitations to comment on the event and its implications for the Austrian government's effort to balance its budget, saying such public statements could not be reconciled with his position as secretary of the Kammer. 
a penal lawsuit was brought against the executives of the bank, and Austrian law prohibited any initiative to influence public opinion before the verdict of the judges. Only three years later did he feel free to analyze these events in an article published in a prominent review, Der Weg der österreichischen Finanzpolitik, The Path of Austrian Financial Policy. Too big to fail, Kreditanstalt was bailed out by Reich's central bank. In exchange, it and other leading banks were co-opted into reintroducing foreign exchange controls through the back door. They were asked to hamper any gold exports of their consumers. Mises must have felt this resurgence of mercantilist ideas was the beginning of the end. To the editor of Deutsche Wirtschaftszeitung, one of the journals that had solicited a comment, he confided, Our financial situation is far worse than the official view admits, and yet Parliament opposes any hard-hitting measures out of concerns for the voters, in particular the many civil servants. The reluctance of the official view to admit the true extent of Austria's socialist plight stemmed also from the corruption of the media. This concerned in particular reports on the city of Vienna, which had become an international showcase for communal socialism. As Mises pointed out in correspondence with a fellow Rotary member from the Netherlands, none of the Vienna newspapers dared oppose rent control or criticize the budget and other financial reports of the city of Vienna because the newspapers depended in so many ways on the city administration. Mises to Josephus Yetar, letter dated June 10, 1931. Yetar was the president of the Rotary Club in Den Haag, The Hague, Mises never met him on his pre-war trips to Holland, 1926-1936. The two men met for the first time at the second, 1949, Mont Pelerin conference. Few economists were critical enough to see through the public propaganda, and even fewer dared to speak out against it. Again, it was the group around Mises that filled this gap, most notably when Hayek published his study on rent control. F.A. Hayek, das Mieterschutzproblem, Nationalökonomische Betrachtungen. Mises was fond of this publication and recommended it in private correspondence. Another good study was published by Josef Schell, Gerechtigkeitsidee und Mietungsgesetzgebung. Schell was married to a young woman who had attended Mises' classes at the Handelsakademie. Mises was so convinced that all the major Austrian banks were bankrupt that he kept personal bank accounts elsewhere. He held this opinion after 1921. These prophecies materialized at an amazing speed. Bankruptcy of the Kreditanstalt could be prevented only with help from the Rothschild banks in Paris and London. Few other establishments had saviors from abroad. Within two months, financial collapse spread throughout Austria, and on Black Monday, July 13th, 1931, it reached Germany. One of the best-reputed German banks, the Darmstädter und Nationalbank, closed its counters, triggering a chain reaction that quickly involved all payments within Germany. When the government decreed a compulsory holiday for the banks and the capital markets, international payments came to a halt. A Lieutenant in London In the spring of 1931, the political prospects for Europe were bleak. The Roaring Twenties had turned out to be a short interlude of relative liberty and international economic cooperation. Now the pendulum had swung back to interventionism and state idolatry. The only signs of hope were those few individuals and groups that had liberated themselves from the political prejudices of the time. The most promising group 
was the one led by Lionel Robbins at the London School of Economics. Robbins' career had been on a fast track. After a two-year stay at Oxford, he had become the chair of LSE's economics department in 1929, following the unexpected death of Alan Young. Robbins gathered around himself a group of brilliant students who would become stars of 20th century economic science. Ronald Coase, William Hutt, John Hicks, Nicholas Caldor, Abba Lerner, Tibor Dushitovsky, George Schackel, Ludwig Lachmann, Paul Sweezy, and Ursula Webb, who married Hicks. Coase started his recollections of his early years at LSE with the following words, I will be discussing what happened in economics in England, but these were times when, to a very considerable extent, this was what happened in economics. They were exposed to Mises' ideas like no other group outside Vienna. Mises' influence on Robbins was mainly based on his writings, but it had been nurtured through personal contact since the early 1920s. By 1931, Mises was thoroughly familiar with the school's staff and faculty and could give detailed instructions to foreign visitors about how to meet people at LSE. In a January 1931 letter to Walter Sulzbach, for example, he recommended that Sulzbach get in touch with Gregory and Robbins, the best economists and freest minds in contemporary England. They had to be looked up in their offices, and, if not there, called on at home. Meyendorf and Schwartz would certainly be willing to receive him if he gave the secretaries his calling card, mentioning that he was a friend of Mises. He recommended the same procedure to solicit the assistance of Mr. Hedekar, the librarian. In those days, Robin's admiration for Mises was boundless. He eagerly proselytized among his countrymen and had already converted his friend Arnold Plant to the cause of Austrian economics. He also sought to increase the Misesian profile of the economics department through regular guest lectures by Mises and his closest students. His long-term plan was to build up an effective counterweight against the pernicious influence of John Maynard Keynes, whose advocacy of inflation and government intervention had swept the universities of Cambridge and Oxford, as well as the Bank of England. Robbins also sought to stem the tides within his own school. This concerned not only political orientation, but also fundamental questions pertaining to the nature and method of economics. For years, LSE's management had sought to make the school a centre of economic research in the image of mathematics and biology. The few remaining old-style economists did not believe the young Robbins was strong enough to fend off the positivist crusaders. But then an unexpected opportunity arose when Hayek visited the department in late January and early February 1931 to present his theory of business cycles, which was based on an elaboration of Bern Barbeck's theory of capital. It was Hayek's first personal encounter with Robbins, who had known him only through his writings. Marta Braun later said that Robbins had tried for years to get Hayek to LSE. Robbins had liked in particular Hayek's critique of the doctrines of the American economists, William Truffin Foster and Waddell Catchings, two highly influential champions of the notion that excessive savings might prevent economic growth. This work earned Hayek a Habilitation degree at the University of Vienna. It was published in 1929 as Gibt es einen Wildersinn des Sparens. 
Similar views were prominent also in the United Kingdom, and in particular in Cambridge, where, as we now know, Keynes went so far as to make plans for the euthanasia of the coupon-clipping classes. Keynes suggested that a deliberate policy of lowering interest rates would mean the euthanasia of the rentier, and consequently the euthanasia of the cumulative oppressive power of the capitalists to exploit the scarcity value of capital. Thus Robinson invited the talented young Austrian to join the cause in Britain. Hayek delivered four lectures to an audience composed of professors and students. They met with mixed success. The senior faculty, most of whom did not know much about Austrian economics, found Hayek's tall figure far more impressive than his arguments. But the younger audience members were stunned. Robbins had prepared his students to receive a revelation from the epicenter of theoretical research, and under the impact of such passionate guidance, they indeed felt that Hayek's lectures were a great success. One of them, later to become a Nobel laureate, wrote about them in retrospect, they were undoubtedly the most successful set of public lectures given at LSE during my time there. The audience, notwithstanding the difficulties of understanding Hayek, was enthralled. What was said seemed to us of great importance, and made us see things of which we had previously been unaware. After hearing these lectures, we knew why there was a depression— most students of economics at LSE and many members of the staff became Hayekians, or at any rate incorporated elements of Hayek's approach in their own thinking. Robbins himself later characterized the Hayek lectures as a sensation that was at once difficult and exciting. Robbins went on, I do not think nowadays that the analytical constructions which excited us so much in the lectures on prices and production had all the wits or appropriateness of assumption which some of us, including conspicuously the present writer, were disposed to claim for them. He immediately prepared their publication and began lobbying to get Hayek a position at LSE. Hayek, probably at the behest of Robbins, wrote a review of Keynes's treatise on money and sent the manuscript to Robbins, who was the editor of LSE's journal Economica. The Cambridge Economist's book had just appeared in December 1930, and Hayek's review of it was brilliant and devastating. Robbins now persuaded LSE director William Beveridge to make him an offer. Hayek became the Took Professor of Political Economy. His lectures were published under the title Prices and Production, and his review of Keynes's book appeared in Economica. The last night of liberalism had found a worthy lieutenant in London. In the fall of the same year, Hayek and Robbins co-taught Hayek's first LSE seminar. The entire economics teaching staff was in attendance when he explained and defended the Austrian theory of capital. In a letter to Mises, Hayek reported on the atmosphere of the discussions. Some of the junior, rank-wise, not age-wise, colleagues, in particular Hicks, Benham, or Toysenby, are excellent too. There is much opportunity for me to learn, and I am hindered in doing so only because Robbins presented me as an eminent authority so that people always want to hear my opinion on all matters. I am aware for the first time that I owe to you virtually everything that gives me an advantage as compared to my colleagues here and to most economists even outside my narrow field of research. Here my indebtedness to you goes without saying. In Vienna, one is less aware of this intellectual debt to you, because it is the unquestioned common basis of our circle. 
if I do not deceive too many expectations of the people here at LSE, it is not to my credit, but to yours. However, my advantage over the others will disappear with your books being translated and becoming generally known. Hayek went on, I must tell you this, because I here feel more indebted to you than any time before. Moreover, given that Robbins and Plant provide excellent support to championing your ideas, I hope to have some success. Mises was certainly happy with this development, commenting on the work of Hutt, one of Robbins's students, who had just published a revisionist account of the impact of capitalism on the condition of the 19th century English working classes, an account that was devastating for the established view that the free market had worsened the plight of the working poor, he wrote in December 1931. In England, one can observe a decided turning away from the atheoretical direction. The movement that today is centered in the London School of Economics and in the person of Robbins will have the greatest scientific and political impact. Robbins and Hayek in turn encouraged their Viennese Meister to visit London more frequently. Mises had a standing invitation to stay at Robbins's home. Hayek argued, here you have at least as many honest admirers as anywhere else, and it would be good if you could reinforce the influence that you exercise anyway through frequent personal visits. The absolute high point of Mises's impact was reached with the publication of Robbins's Nature and Significance of Economic Science. Sending a copy to Mises, the author called it a modest attempt to popularize for English readers the methodological implications of modern economic science, and he apologized for my crudities of exposition. But the love affair between LSE and Misesian economics did not last. The new Austrian doctrines had initially benefited from their exoticness and novelty, but their policy implications prevented certain long-term conversions. A case in point was William Beveridge, who, during the late 1920s, had been infected by Robbins's enthusiasm for the logical rigor of Mises' writings, which had made him more tolerant toward classical liberal policy prescriptions. He was a notorious champion of intervention, most notably in the free labor market. But by the time Hayek delivered his inaugural lecture in early 1933, Sir William had become again a socialist of the purest sort. Hayek surmised that this was an emotional reaction to Gemeinwirtschaft, which he had just read and not understood said Hayek to Mises in a letter dated March 10, 1933. Mises replied, I'm sorry that the impact of Gemeinwirtschaft on Sir William was not the intended one. By the way, has he already read the English version? Mises to Hayek in a letter dated March 17, 1933. Thus, the manuscript must have been available by March 1933. Beveridge's opposition could explain why the book came out only in 1936. Hayek himself was instrumental in turning the LSE group away from Mises and to the emerging verbal Walrassian movement that had begun in Germany a decade earlier under the leadership of Wieser, Kassel, and Schumpeter. Given Hayek's background, this was hardly surprising. His economic thought had been nurtured in the classes of Friedrich von Wieser, and he had never made a secret of this intellectual heritage. Mises knew this perfectly well. Significantly, he hailed Hayek's article on capital consumption as the best and clearest of all his writings, after Hayek had published his two early books on money and the trade cycle. Hayek not only stressed the common features of the Austrian and the Lausanne schools, but also believed the latter to be far more technically advanced and therefore better suited to deal with the more demanding problems of economic analysis, in particular for the problem of value imputation. 
He would have presented these views from his very first LSE seminar on capital theory, where he must have found the ready support of the young John Hicks, who at that time had already embarked on his project of bringing Valras and Pareto to LSE. Hicks had taught advanced classes in economics from 1929 onwards. That is, from the moment Robbins assumed leadership of the department. Their combined influence came to be felt most notably in the second edition of Robbins's Nature and Significance of Economic Science, which appeared in 1935. While the first edition almost completely neglected the Lausanne School, the new edition was replete with references to mathematical economists. Hayek acquainted Robbins's group with the views of the fourth-generation Austrian economists. He championed the notion that general equilibrium theory was the state of the art, and that all verbal economists, including Mises, worked within the very same framework. They were convinced that all further elaborations had to depart from here. Morgenstern and Hayek most vividly felt the need for reform, but neither of them grasped that the alternative was already at hand. It has escaped their notice that the logical structure of Mises' arguments against socialism and interventionism was squarely outside the Walrassian paradigm. Hayek's two books on money appeared in English before any of Mises' works, and he was the first Austrian economist ever to have a direct personal impact on the Anglo-Saxon world, the last best hope for Austrian economists after Germany and Austria turned socialist in the 1930s. It was Hayek, therefore, who was responsible for the impression of most English and American economists about modern Austrian economics during those critical years before the publication of Keynes's general theory. It seems he made his case less successfully than his great rival from Cambridge. Hayek later regretted that he had not refuted Keynes's general theory in 1936 as he had done earlier with his treatise on money, and he seems to have believed that his failure to do so was crucial to the success of the Keynesian revolution. But this was certainly an exaggeration of the influence he had with his British colleagues at the time. Hayek failed to do in 1930s Britain what Mises had done in 1920s Germany, reverse the orientation of the profession by the sheer power of his arguments. Hayek had his chance, but in the perception of the British mainstream his writings were at best controversial. Sraffa's review of prices and production had at least the same negative impact on Hayek's influence as Hayek's review of the treatise on money had had on Keynes's. To a certain extent this resulted from the inconsistencies and contradictions Hayek had inherited from his real mentor. Hayek was, and would remain, throughout his life a disciple of Wieser's. This was so despite the fact that of the entire fourth generation of Austrian economists, he was the one closest to Mises in both methodological and political views. In the few years following the creation of the Institut für Konjunkturforschung, his political views became indistinguishable from those of Mises. The main reason, however, was that Hayek, still in his early thirties, was simply overburdened by the amount of work involved in trying to live up to Robbins's expectations. He never managed to publish more than essays or excerpts of much larger but unfinished manuscripts, a fact he constantly lamented. He never had the time to think through the fundamental problems of economic theory in its relationship to all other elements of Austrian economics. His presentations of monetary theory, capital theory, and business cycle theory were mainly syntheses of already existing doctrines. 
Where he could not rely on the work of others as a supporting framework, he lost himself in the analysis of details and never produced a coherent picture of his subject. The best illustration of this is F.R. Hayek's Pure Theory of Capital, the product of ten years at LSE. It was a book with neither head nor tail. When Keynes's general theory appeared in the same year as the English translation of Mises' Socialism, the initial curiosity about Austrian economics had faded. The stage was set for the return of the local champion. Hayek had made no progress in promoting Austrian economists among the group of brilliant students who, after the Second World War, would shape economic teaching and research throughout the world. After ten years at LSE, he had used up the authority he inherited from Mises and lost former allies to the burgeoning Keynesian revolution. This might seem in retrospect like a lost opportunity. Hayek was in a pivotal position to prepare for the rise of Austrian economics in England and the United States, and he certainly could have done more to promote Austrian economics in London had the circumstances been different. But the circumstances were what they were. Hayek had come to LSE at a time when the chair of the economics department was politically weak, and when the efforts of the school's management to turn economics into applied mathematics had attracted a number of highly gifted students eager to explore this new direction. Moreover, Austrian economics was not yet what it was about to become. The school was still in the phase before Mises' quantum leap. The encompassing system of economic thought that would first be expressed in Nationale Economie, 1940, and then in Human Action, 1949, was then only visible in its broadest outlines. Finally, there is the simple fact that Hayek was not a Misesian. In the early 1930s, Hayek was a pillar of the very same general equilibrium movement that he decried a few years later. It would be meaningless to regret, in hindsight, that Hayek did not do what he had never set out to do, what he could not have succeeded in doing had he tried. He could not explain and defend a doctrine in the 1930s that was not fully developed until the 1940s. Return to Foreign Exchange Controls After his return from the ICC meeting in Washington, Mises spent two busy months trying to limit the political damage of the Kreditanstalt crisis. When he left Vienna at the end of July, he had helped beat back attempts to officially establish a system of foreign exchange controls that would have thrown Austria back to 1922. He returned to Vienna in mid-September, just in time to learn that the Bank of England had abandoned the gold standard, refusing to redeem its notes in gold. The Bank of England suspended payments on September 19, 1931. Mises was shocked and feared the worst. He surprised the members of his seminar, but especially his English student, Ursula Webb, with the announcement that, in one week, England will be in a hyperinflation. The incident was reported in John R. Hicks' A Market Theory of Money. Ursula Webb was at the time studying in Vienna. A few years later, she married John Hicks. He still did not fully anticipate the political landslide that soon set in. A week later, he left Vienna again, this time for lectures in London and Frankfurt. In London, Mises stayed at Robbins's house. He had probably arranged this trip at the end of September in order to avoid celebrations of his 50th birthday in Vienna. He asked his secretary to stifle all such attempt. He would be more agreeable if the organizers of birthday parties returned in twenty years. When he returned to Vienna on October 6th, the government had officially reintroduced foreign exchange controls, instituting a return to the bad old days he had thought were gone forever. As he wrote to one of his friends, 
Events in Austria are taking a turn that causes me to fear the worst. We have found ourselves in a controlled economy once again. Foreign currency stocks are being managed. A kind of central economic agency, albeit under a different name, is being set up for each of the various branches of industry. Usury laws and seizures lie just ahead. People have learned nothing and have forgotten everything. You can imagine my disposition under such circumstances. The collapse of the brief period of free trade that had blossomed in the second half of the 1920s was now at hand. More bad news poured in. Some of Mises' former allies were now advocating inflation using theories that had been refuted countless times. For example, Reich published a paper arguing that although all fiduciary media are by their very nature inflationary, this inflation was not harmful if the fiduciary media were issued only as short-term commercial credits. Reich, it will be recalled, was the president of the Österreichische Nationalbank. Mises commented on the paper in private correspondence. Horrendous. One incident epitomized the entire situation. In July 1930, Mises had been invited by the League of Nations to write a memorandum for the League's gold delegation. The mission of the delegation was to examine into and report upon the causes of fluctuations in the purchasing power of gold and their effect on the economic life of the nations. Among its members were Keynes, Kassel, Sprague, and Janssen. Certainly a bad sign. Still, Mises complied, and in early October 1930 sent his paper to Alexander Loveday, the head of the League's Rockefeller-sponsored Economic Intelligence Unit. Publication was delayed, however, and a year later Mises was notified that none of the memoranda that had been solicited for the Gold Delegation would be published, ostensibly for budgetary reasons. Keynes and others had meanwhile published the Macmillan Report, which made a highly successful case for inflational finance to stop the fall of the price level. Mises was invited to sit on the new foreign exchange board, whose job was to do everything of which he disapproved. He probably accepted the position in order not to hurt Austrian credit abroad. His absence from the board would have disquieted foreign investors. In a letter to Robbins, he described the new system and his function within it. Just when I returned to Vienna, the crazy foreign exchange control was introduced. At the top of this unfortunate system is a foreign exchange board, which decides everything pertaining to our foreign commerce, and thus is some sort of a general director of the national economy. I am the only non-interventionist member of this body, into which I fit as well as into the Executive Council of the Third International in Moscow. There is a general enthusiasm for new interventionist measures, and for state capitalism, and hyper-interventionism. Any resistance against this policy is preemptorily opposed by pointing out that England, too, is now going to adopt a policy of high protective tariffs. The original German term for the board was Divisienbeirat, or more explicitly Beirat für die Divisienzuteilung in der Nationalbank. The power of the board was soon cut back quite drastically, possibly as a consequence of Mises' agitation from within. Only two weeks after Mises had presented it as a central planning bureau in a letter to Robbins, he wrote to Hayek that the board was a totally superfluous institution since it has no power, and that he regretted having agreed to spend his time there. Still, a board position seems to have been powerful enough to influence the allocation of foreign currency to individual firms, giving Mises the unwanted power to grant favours to special interests. In January 1932, for example, he received a letter 
from Abraham Vorwein, an important German industrialist and vice president of the International Chamber of Commerce. Vorwein owned a silk factory in Vienna. The firm's activities depended crucially on access to foreign currency to pay for imported raw materials. Mises ignored the offer to return any services as a matter of course, and instead referred Frauwein's representative to a colleague on the board who was responsible for the silk industry. After the war, Frauwein became the honorary president of the ICC and remained on good terms with Mises. Since no Austrian could buy foreign currency or take shillings out of the economy, traveling was almost impossible for ordinary citizens, a considerable problem for Mises, who often went abroad for lectures. And for other private reasons, he had a small account at the Österreichisches Kreditinstitut für Öffentliche Unternehmungen und Arbeiten, through which all foreign payments were channeled. Mises used it to pay for his books, for example, for the Encyclopedia of the Social Sciences, to which he had subscribed before the foreign exchange controls were instituted. Yet this private clearing involved a markup of 22%. But he had just concluded a new contract with Gustav Fischer, for a new edition of Socialism, and Fischer agreed to become Mises' unofficial banker. He did not pay royalties to Mises' account in Vienna, but kept the money and sent it piecemeal to the hotels where Mises stayed on his trips in Germany. This is how Mises was able to participate, for example, in board and committee meetings of the Verein für Sozialpolitik in Berlin in early January 1932 and in the Verein's annual convention in September of the same year. Back home in the fall of 1931, Mises organized a meeting of the Nationalökonomische Gesellschaft and, in a passionate speech, attacked the notion that the current crisis resulted from shortcomings of capitalism and required the remedy of more government intervention. The only rational response to the present calamity was finally to stand against the labor unions, which were the root cause of the inflationary policies behind the crisis. The lecture drew international attention. Hayek in London had heard reports about it. Some reacted with hysteria, especially after Mises published his position as Die Krise unter Kapitalismus, Crisis and Capitalism. His former student, Hedwig Lemberger, claimed that economic science was bankrupt if it had no other solution for unemployment than to allow the unhampered market to reduce wage rates. She argued that Mises' Manchester liberal analysis applied only to the conditions of the 19th century, while in the present crisis unemployment resulted from unmanageably fast technological progress, as Emil Lederer had explained. Mises replied, I cannot understand why it is a declaration of bankruptcy for economic science to see one of the causes of disruptions of economic life in the labor union policy of keeping wage rates above the level that would be established on the unhampered market, and in the fact that government supports this policy through unemployment relief and the refusal to protect job seekers. Streamlining has nothing to do with unemployment. There was streamlining also in the 19th century, maybe even to a relatively greater extent than today, but because at the time there were no interventions in the formation of wage rates, the fired workers found employment in new and extended industries. They would even have been absorbed far quicker, but for a number of government regulations that hampered their freedom of migration and change of profession. My assumptions do not merely rely, as you believe, on the experience of times long past, but especially on irrefutable theoretical considerations. Eventually the crisis was settled the same way as the post-war crisis ten years earlier, more foreign debt. In July 1932, Austria secured a foreign credit of 300 million shillings 
from the League of Nations. The road was free for a new beginning. The crisis prompted a renewed interest in business cycle research and in seeking the means for government to steer the economy away from the increasingly dramatic swings between boom and bust. The Vienna Institute for Business Cycle Research published two monographs that were to become classics in the literature of economic science, Hayek's Preise und Produktion and Fritz Machlup's Börsenkredit, Industriekredit und Kapitalbildung. Mises was very proud of these works, especially of Machlup's book, which he called a masterpiece. Austrian analysis of the fundamental practical issues of the day were much needed to counter prevailing anti-capitalist views. Mises's educational mission over the past ten years now paid off. Many years later, a member of the Mises orbit recalled in correspondence the diehard Kempferische group of Mises, Hayek, Striegel, Morgenstern, and Meiner that used all available media and institutions to plead the case for economic liberty and against government interventionism. These activities had their impact on public policy. In distinct contrast to the massive proto-Keynesian deficit spending policies that in the early 1930s came to be applied in other Western countries, the Austrian government pursued a program of comparative austerity with some very positive results. From 1932 to 1937, national production dramatically increased in industry and agriculture, the government's budget was balanced, foreign public debt was cut in half, central bank reserves doubled, and unemployment shrank from 310,000 to 222,000. One ally of this group, Fritz Wolfram, proposed a radical remedy to the situation, total liberalization of the monetary sector. Wolfram not only recommended rescinding foreign exchange controls, he also called for the abolition of all impediments to private minting and the private issue of banknotes. This reform, he argued, would not only be a way out of the present calamity and prevent similar crises in the future, it would also lead to monetary liberalization in other countries. This, in turn, would raise the price of precious metals, further rewarding the early adopters. It is certain that the country that first liberates the monetary economy will benefit most from its fructifying benefits, and it is obvious that once the process is set in motion, each country must follow the others. As Wolfram's case demonstrates, the crisis divided the wheat from the chaff within the classical liberal movement. Some abandoned liberalism and returned to interventionism, while others became more radical in their defense of liberty. Lionel Robbins wrote to Mises, Every day reveals fresh incursions of the system of free exchange and private property, and it becomes clear that the number of persons capable of putting up an intelligent defense of capitalist institutions is very small. Behind the scenes, we do what we can, but there are not many of us to carry on the battle. The sad thing about the crisis is that it seeks to be driving so many who at one time were good liberals over to the other side. With me, it has been just the opposite. All sorts of doubts and mental reservations have been cleared up, and I am conscious of being much more streng than in the past. Certainly, to judge from the quality of the argument on the other side, it ought not to be difficult to defeat it on that plane. Streng means severe. Mises agreed. At the end of December, he wrote a two-part article for the Neue Freie Presse on the gold standard and its enemies. He argued it was impossible to replace gold in international exchanges, and even in domestic exchanges. The position of this metal would only grow stronger the more the national governments followed their inflationary policies. Mises accepted a proposal of the journalist Robert Scheu, 
who in February 1932 had invited him to take part in what was then an entirely new format, the talk show. Shorey's idea was to conduct live interviews with prominent experts on the pressing economic issues of the day. The interviews would be held in a public auditorium and broadcast to a radio audience. The first interviewee in early March 1932 was Otmar Spann. The evening was apparently a great success, despite the fact that Spann had rarely given public lectures. Still, Mises hesitated. From previous correspondence, Mises knew Shoy to be a money crank, so he sought to establish a list of questions to which he would reply. Mises eventually appeared on the talk show on Thursday, March 17th, to discuss the gold standard compared to other monetary systems, the regulation of the monetary circulation of a national economy, the role of central banks in monetary policy, the creation of national currencies, and the theories of Silvio Gazelle, Germany's most popular money crank who advocated new laws to encourage the spending of money by special tax on hoarding, that is, on savings. Gazelle's views found a spokesman in the eloquent and authoritative Keynes. In early April 1932, then, Mises eventually got the comer to adopt a resolution against the artificial exchange rate of the shilling. Albert Hahn wrote from Frankfurt, asking Mises to what extent he was responsible for the contents of the comer report, to which Mises replied, The resolution has resulted from a first draft that I wrote, but after difficult and lengthy negotiations it has been revised to obtain unanimity through compromise. Hence, I myself cannot, of course, take public responsibility. I would have stated things less ambiguously. The Austrian government did not change its course, and by June, a return to the old gold parity was no longer possible without upsetting the price system, which had adjusted to the circumstances. The economic situation had considerably deteriorated, and Mises was furious, fulminating in a letter to his Dutch colleague and friend, G.M. Verein Stewart. In Austria we stand on the debris of the interventionist and state-socialist system. All of the public firms have passive balances, and considerable sums of tax money must be used to compensate for these deficits. Unemployment grows and unemployment relief devastates public finance. But the peak of the madness is the foreign exchange controls. He who seeks to study the consequences of thoroughgoing state socialism, city socialism, and interventionism should pursue these studies in Austria, where we enjoy government interventionism without gaps. We have reached the point where those who merely argue in favor of protective tariffs and against the prohibition of imports are decried as free traders. It was probably in these days that Mises became a metalist. Having supported the gold exchange standard, he now advocated a metallic currency as a way to keep government out of monetary policy altogether. Mises here states that he advocated the classical old gold standard and not the gold exchange standard, and that I changed my mind concerning the functioning of the gold exchange standard as it happened more than thirty years ago. More than twenty years earlier in the first edition of his Theory of Money and Credit, he had come close to poking fun at the simpletons who believed coins of precious metal were money in some stronger sense than banknotes were. As a young man, he had come across gold and silver coins only as collector's items. His father had a famous collection. He had always understood the merit of a metallic standard to keep the quantity of money independent of political manipulation, but he had never advocated the actual circulation of gold or silver coins. But now the evidence was undeniable. Governments could not be trusted even with the production of money. 
He remained a monetary metalist for the rest of his life. In a roundtable discussion on the gold standard that took place in January 1948, Mises spoke only once, and only to underline a point made by another speaker. Under present conditions, no return to the gold standard is possible without a return to an effectual circulation of gold coins. If gold coins are employed in daily transactions, if everybody is used to receiving and giving away gold pieces, if people are accustomed to carrying gold coins for retail purposes, the public becomes aware of the fact that gold is the nation's standard money and that the country is under a gold standard. This cognizance is not merely pedagogic value. It enables the average citizen to realize in time whether his government is clinging to sound monetary policies or whether it is tampering with the currency system. The weakness of a gold standard without effectual circulation of gold coins consists precisely in the fact that it makes it extremely difficult for the average citizen to discern inflation in its early stages. An effectual gold coin circulation makes the voter the guardian of the gold standard. This is its main function. He was underlining something said by Spa. Second edition of Socialism The battles on the political front had their impact on Mises's academic pursuits, especially on his teaching. The 1931-1932 private seminar met more irregularly, or at any rate was less well planned than usual. At least some of the sessions apparently dealt with the theory of capital and the business cycle, featuring lectures by Machlup, Morgenstern and Bloch. His university seminar now focused on methodological problems of the social sciences. Subjects dealt with in the winter semester were the relationship between theory and praxis, and between facts and theories, the implications of the is-ought distinction, the universal validity of economic knowledge, quantitative and qualitative knowledge, the relations between statistical, historical and theoretical research, the meaning of verstehen, behaviorism, the mathematical method, forecasting in economics and economics and sociology. Mises had to begin the 1932 summer semester late because he had to attend two conferences of the International Chamber of Commerce and also take part in a World Economic Conference in Berlin, which reunited politicians and experts from all over the world to discuss the implications of the present crisis for international commerce and finance. The ICC conference in Innsbruck took place in the third week of April, the Welthandelswoche in the first week of May, and the ICC conference in Munich started on May 18th. The Weltwirtschaftskonferenz Berlin 1932 was part of a Welthandelswoche, a week-long conference organized by the newspaper Berliner Tageblatt. Mises was back in Vienna by Friday morning, May 6th, for urgent kammer business. The seminar sessions continued the discussion of the winter semester, dealing in particular with behaviorism and its relationship with the approach of German historicism, the meaning of meaning in the social sciences and its connections with utilitarianism, the concept of homo economicus, economics and sociology, sociology and history, and again forecasting in economics. Mises' biggest academic project in 1931-1932 was the preparation of the second edition of Socialism. Upon his return from the United States, he found on his desk a letter from Gustav Fischer announcing that Fischer was running out of copies of Socialism and inquiring whether Mises would be interested in doing a second edition. Of course he would. The first edition comprised 2,000 copies, plus 100 complementary and review copies, more than a thousand of which had been sold within two years of publication, to the point 
that in 1924 already Fisher anticipated a second edition for some time after 1925. Eventually, however, the sales did not confirm these hopes. Mises' friend, F.G. Steiner, a Paris-based banker, believed the main reason the book was not more popular was the inadequacy of its German title. The prospect of learning something about Gemeinwirtschaft, the communal economy, did not appeal to less educated readers. He hoped a new edition would soon be forthcoming. Even more so than when your book was first published, there is today a kind of defeatism spreading among members of the capitalist class. Arguments of the type so brilliantly presented in your book could provide the necessary encouragement. Mises began revising the manuscript, probably in the summer of 1931. In order not to increase the length of the book, he had to cut some parts to compensate for additions. Following suggestions by Robbins, for example, he added a comment on the impossibility of syndicalism and also added a discussion of Heimann's Mehrwert und Gemeinwirtschaft, 1922, as an appendix to the new edition. Mises, in fact, reproduced in his book the entire survey on recent contributions to the analysis of socialist calculation that he had published some years before in the archive. The passages on Heimann stress the dynamic nature of the problem of pricing. Prices for factors of production cannot simply be imputed backwards from the prices for consumers' goods since the entrepreneur produces for future consumption, and future prices for consumers' goods cannot be directly inferred from present prices. Mises sent the first 405 pages of the revised manuscript to Fisher at the end of October 1931. Then, the process slowed due to Mises' greater involvement in the campaign against foreign exchange controls. In order not to lose too much time, Mises had asked four friends to help him review the proof pages. The division of labor worked well, and on February 26, 1932, Mises sent the last pages to Fisher by courier. Fisher received it the next day and immediately forwarded it to Lippert and Company in Naumburg. A month later, Fischer held the first copies in his hands, and on April 1st, Mises received his complimentary copies in Vienna. He received 30 complimentary copies of the book, 10 of which were hardcover. 20 of these, sexual hardcovers, were sent to Vienna. Mises had Fischer send the remaining 10 plus 9 more copies, for which he himself paid, to the following people. Hardcover copies went to Robbins, Anderson, Sulzbach, and Beveridge. Paperbacks went to Gregory, Hayek, both Verein Stewarts, Adolf Weber, Passau, Wiese, Oswald, Fleurus, Halm, Hahn, Röpke, Wolfrum, Brutzkus, and Lederer. The book was a financial success for Mises. He received a prepaid 15% of the selling price of a total volume of 1,500 copies and with royalties totaling 4,050 marks. But the most gratifying result lay in the reactions from both friends and foes who honoured the new edition as the leading anti-socialist and affirmatively liberal work within scientific economic literature. One reviewer said, The battle between individualism and socialism, which by now has been waged almost 100 years, has now entered its final phase. In a few years or decades, at most, victory will be on one side or the other. At the high point of this battle, Mises's book is a crucial action. It is impossible to estimate its intellectual, economic, and, in the long run, even its political implications.
Critics charged that Mises had not taken account of the most recent attempt to solve the problem of socialist calculation, but they made no attempt to name or describe these alleged new solutions. Another typical criticism was to qualify Mises' ideas as utopian. Some critics apparently felt pity for Mises, whose radicalism had left him few allies. One such critic wrote about Mises' tragic fate. He advocates the liberalism of the so-called classical economists so unshakably and bluntly that he has become an embarrassment to those who would normally agree with him. Mises disdains any concessions in matters of social policy and ideology, and hence he provides a cheap opportunity to many liberal theoreticians who are just not as courageous as he is to differentiate themselves from him in a self-serving and compassionate way. Inadvertently, this critic had pointed out a great service that Mises provided for all those who were, like the critic himself, opposed to government omnipotence, but did not want to reduce the scope of the state as radically as did the Vienna economist. Mises put these half-baked liberals in a comfortable middle-of-the-road position. They could make use of his arguments without a full commitment to their practical implications. Mises made them appear less radical. It is true that Mises' radicalism alienated some of those who might otherwise have been closer allies, but it also altered the thinking of many open-minded readers, those who were willing to weigh his arguments against their prejudices. These readers often acknowledged the pertinence of his analysis of socialism and interventionism. Mises' work made them understand that capitalism must not be confused with the observed reality of the traditional economic order. One reviewer said, Possibly the greatest merit of the work is that it shows that the present-day shortcomings of capitalism, the so-called economic system of individualism, result to a large extent from the fact that, for some time now, we have not had such a system, but ever more distort it in the interest of domestic and foreign policy. Another. In some circles, Mises is called the last consistent representative of a liberal economic order, he is certainly not the last, but after many years the first who has dared to think through all the consequences of such an order, and to erect and demonstrate a doctrine with unshakable logic. The most enthusiastic responses came from younger economists, but these followers did not expect Mises' argument to convert the mainstream any time soon. One of them, Georg Halm, from the University of Würzburg, said Mises himself was too optimistic. I could name no work that is as revolutionary within its field as your Gemeinwirtschaft. Later generations will probably recognize this much more clearly than the bulk of your contemporaries. I believe you overestimate the latter considerably in your statements that your views are rarely contested today. Isn't the discussion of your Gemeinwirtschaft in Lederer's brochure Planned Economy mind-boggling? The response, I find that Lederer, in his amply unclear brochure Centrally Planned Economy, makes it obvious that socialist theory is completely bankrupt. In fact, the use of money is, in his eyes, the only basis for economic calculation, but he fails to see that, in a society in which the means of production are not privately owned, there is no pricing process for means of production. Moreover, and characteristically, he falls prey to the other error of Kautsky, in that he wants to use past prices as a starting point. The few pages dedicated to this problem deliver nothing new, and are even more confused than the previous justification attempts by socialist writers. Dresden Meeting of the Verein für Sozialpolitik On January 4th and 5th, 1932, 
in meetings of the board and of the Committee of the Verein für Sozialpolitik in Berlin. Mises met some of these colleagues whom he so overestimated. He had unsuccessfully encouraged Hayek to attend the sessions, saying, Doubtlessly it will be interesting. Maybe it is the last meeting before the abolition of usury. Brechung der Zinsknechtschaft. The phrase abolition of usury alludes to point 11 of the National Socialist Worker Party program of February 24, 1920. Mises hoped to convince the committee to have value theory and the economics of cartels discussed at the forthcoming plenary meeting in Dresden. Both projects were thwarted when the committee, after a heated debate, decided to set the issue of national autarky, economic self-sufficiency through trade isolation, on the agenda. Mises thought this decision was completely unacceptable, and that it had the potential to destroy the Verein. There was no common ground for the discussion of autarky. Making it the subject of discussion was bound to intensify rather than alleviate the clashes among members. Disillusioned with the Verein's willingness to promote productive scientific cooperation, he did not even plan to attend the Dresden meeting, but changed his mind when he learned from Spiedhoff that there would finally be a subcommittee meeting on value theory. I have not yet entirely abandoned all hope that it will be possible to do fruitful work within the Verein für Sozialpolitik all depends on the course of the Dresden meeting and on the new president, said Mises in a letter to Georg Jan. In preparation for this meeting, Spiethoff and Mises edited a volume on the problems of value theory. Probleme der Wertlehre. The chapters of this book were solicited from proponents and opponents of the Austrian theory of value and prices. The selection of the authors ensured that all major points of view could be expressed. Superficially, the great divide was between the moderns, that is, advocates of marginal value theory as the basis of price theory, and the Cassilian, Compart, historicist, Gottel, Marxist, Oppenheimer, and universalist, Spann, opponents. This divide was also reflected in the co-editorship of Mises and Spiethoff, who were known to be in different camps, but more to the point, the book was part of Mises's strategy to spread the message that economic science was not a matter of mere personal opinion. There are certain fundamental facts on which all past and present economists agreed, despite all the differences separating the various schools. The subcommittee meeting took place immediately after the plenary meeting, which was held on September 28th and 29th, 1932. Mises gave the opening talk, emphasizing that marginal value theory alone was able to explain all economic phenomena, and that the different forms in which the marginal principle was advocated were not nearly as incompatible as the opponents of economic science claim. His speech was subsequently printed with that title in Mises and Arthur Spiethoff editors Probleme der Wertlehre, reprinted with the title Der Streit um die Werttheorie in Mises's book Grundprobleme der Nationalökonomie, translated by George Reisman as The Controversy over the Theory of Value. As one newspaper report put it, the meeting was attended by a large delegation from Vienna and by advocates of the marginal utility school working in foreign countries. These participants showed how productively the theories of the Vienna and the Lausanne schools could be further developed. The discussion was less controversial than might have been expected because the main opponents of value theory, Liefmann, Kassel, Spann, and Oppenheimer, had not even come to take part in the meeting. 
neither had any of their disciples appeared. This was a remarkable fact in its own right, and was duly noticed in the preface of the proceedings. The debate was then to a large extent a Viennese affair. But the Dresden meeting was also a breakthrough from the point of view of contemporary history. It was a high point of the renaissance of political economy in Germany. During the preceding decade, economic theory had again become palatable in the places of higher learning, where the historical school had for a long time reigned supreme. Three publications in 1931 epitomized this change and the central role Mises played in it. The most important of these publications was the third edition of Adolf Weber's textbook, which, in Mises' judgment, was the most significant German-language textbook of economics in its day. Weber had sent Mises a copy of his book in November 1931. Mises replied, I greet the success of your book as a sign that public opinion is beginning a gradual shift in the direction of sound ideas. Similarly, the Frankfurt professor Budke published his textbook on monetary economics, Lehre vom Geld, in which he acknowledged Mises' achievements and critically discussed Mises' views. Mises was very grateful. Some two years later, shortly after Hitler had seized power in Germany, Mises stated that his monetary theory had become in Germany, after the First World War, the dominant theory of the business cycle. Last but not least, Georg Hohn published a revised edition of the late Ludwig Pohler's standard textbook on capitalism and socialism, based on Pohler's notes. The great bulk of the extensive editions brought a more radical rejection of socialist schemes, bolstered by quotations from socialism and other of Mises' works. In the same year, a PhD student of Halm's in Würzburg, Karl Wagner, defended a doctoral thesis that ripped National Socialist ideology apart and received praise from Mises. Mises said, Your work needs to be welcomed not only as a scientific achievement, but also as a political deed. Wagner was one of several promising young economists who were eventually swept aside by German National Socialism. The seeds Mises had planted in German soil were in for a long winter. Most of them died during the Nazi episode. Those few that survived experienced a short blossoming in the late 1940s and 1950s and helped re-establish a market economy in the land of Bismarck and Hitler. The 1932 Dresden meeting of the Verein gave a taste of what might have been possible if Mises' campaign to demonstrate the libertarian political implications of economic science had been allowed to run its course. The first day of the meeting featured a session on industrialization and unemployment. Werner Zombart was now a vice-president of the Verein and in charge of selecting the invited lecturers. He had difficulty finding lecturers he considered suitable. Eventually, he opted for his disciple Manuel Zeitzel of Zurich and for Gerhard Kolm of Kiel, but neither one endorsed the Zombatian line which presented the massive unemployment in Germany and Austria as a consequence of economization and streamlining in industry. They argued that such technological changes could not cause unemployment on a massive and permanent scale. Zaitsev contended that the real reasons included high tariffs, and Kolm pointed to the inflexibility of wage rates and other prices, which resulted from powerful labor unions and cartels. Kolm also stated that the selection process of the market was hampered by modern bankruptcy laws which were too lenient on debtors and by subsidies paid to unprofitable firms. Clearly, these views were not to the liking of Zombart or the Verein establishment. 
The next day of the meeting, Thursday, September 29th, 1932, demonstrated even more forcefully how much economic common sense had displaced the old allegiance to the interventionist creed. The sessions were supposed to deal with the question of autarky, but the meeting once again took an entirely different course from what the Verein leadership had anticipated. Here, too, Zombart had had difficulties finding suitable candidates who could make a substantial case in favor of autarky. He eventually settled on Konstantin von Dietze and Emil Lederer, who were only moderate autarchists at best. Dietze half-heartedly defended autarky by arguing that food freedom was necessary in war and that agrarian workers were physically better suited as soldiers, but he concluded his talk insisting that autarky offered no solution to unemployment and that his real confidence lay with the forces of the free market. The high point of the meeting approached when Emil Lederer, with the full authority of his position at the University of Berlin, in a brilliant speech that was based on the traditional arguments of the free trade doctrine and on the most recent statistical data, argued that no country was less suited to engage in protectionism than Germany. In the ensuing debate on autarky, almost all the speakers emphasized that it was wrong to oppose free trade as contrary to the national interest and that it would be wrong to make free trade policies conditional on the trade policies of other countries. Commenting on the meeting for a major Vienna business newspaper, Louise Sommer noticed the historical irony of the Verein's majority now advocating free trade and free markets. Sommer traced the emergence of this new majority to the early 1920s, when Heinrich Herkner's endorsement of Mises' socialism caused a crisis of social policy. Mises' ideas, wrote Sommer, were the primary agent of the transformation of Germany's intellectual landscape in the 1920s. The ideas that Mises developed in his book have affected the entire ideology of the Verein für Sozialpolitik and turned it toward an endorsement of the free market economy. It is from this point on that the Verein has unmistakably changed its goals. It has now become a battlefield for the debate of questions of economic principle and economic order. It is a milestone of the history of this association, that free market ideas have had a renaissance at this year's meeting, that the fight against autarky, against the whole system of restraints and regulations that fetters economic life, has been taken up at the meeting with much energy. Just as Mises was finally beginning to stir the spirit of liberty among the young generation of German economists, the old Kathedersozialisten had a final and devastating triumph. On January 30th, 1933, their intellectual scion, Adolf Hitler, was appointed Chancellor of the German Reich. When the Nazis rose to power, they immediately began with their program of Gleichschaltung, enforced conformity, literally synchronization, whose goal was to subordinate all organizations to the central Nazi organizations that controlled the federal government. Faced with the choice of becoming part of the Nazi apparatus or self-dissolution, the Verein honorably chose to disband in December of 1936. Even more honorably, Mises quit the Verein three years earlier in immediate protest against the Gleichschaltung laws. The Verein was re-established after the Second World War in 1948. Mises did not wish to have anything to do with this post-war organization. Mises was also one of the initiators of an international effort to provide new career opportunities to the academics whom the Nazis expelled from Germany. 
At the end of March 1933, Beveridge and Robbins were in Vienna and met Mises for dinner. Their Austrian friend stormed into the lobby of the Hotel Bristol, breaking the news that the Nazis had fired a number of Jewish academics, such as Bonn, Mannheim, and Kantorwitz. On the spot, the three men discussed what could be done to help these German socialists. Would it be possible to set up relief funds in France and Britain to employ them? Beveridge announced that he himself would oversee a relief action to LSE. Back in London, Robbins organized a meeting of LSE's professorial council, which voted for a scheme of voluntary deductions from staff salaries to finance the relief fund. He also convinced Beveridge to support an even larger scheme, and eventually a relief fund was created on a national scale. In a letter to Mises in which he reported on progress, Robbins praised his correspondent for having seen the practical implications of the new situation and for initiating an effective response. Economic Theory Completed In the Dresden discussions of value theory, Mises had emphasized that a productive debate could take place only among those who did not rule out the possibility of a universally valid social theory. Those who excluded this possibility on an a priori grounds were forced to endorse what Mises would eventually call polylogism, the extreme historicist hypothesis that there is no such thing as a generally valid social theory because the structure of the human mind was in a state of constant flux. According to this hypothesis, there is not just one universally valid theory of human action, there are in fact several different logics of action. The most explicit champion of polylogism had been the socialist Josef Dietzgen, 1828-1888, who had developed a materialistic philosophy independent of Marx and Engels. In 1929, the case for polylogism came into the spotlight of scientific debate with the publication of Karl Mannheim's Ideologie und Utopie. It quickly found support in all political camps. Polylogism was an expedient tool to avoid the scrutiny of arguments, especially those made by economists, and to replace the sober process of reasoning with the emotional appeal of name-calling. Advocates of polylogism could simply declare all theories they disliked as bourgeois theories, without entering into a detailed discussion of their contents and arguments. Not surprisingly, the German racists were eager to adopt the same comfortable strategy to avoid critical debate of the ideology of the Aryan master race. Mises recalled, Professor Biberbach of the University of Breslau distinguishes between Anglo-Saxon Franco-Jewish mathematics and German mathematics. Professor Lennart, the winner of the Nobel Prize, believes that only German physics are true, whereas the physics of all the other nations are simply nonsense. The author was a medical doctor. A few years later, Mises explained the historical setting of this intellectual current, until the middle of the 19th century, everybody took it for granted that the logical structure of the human mind is the same with every human being. All human relations are based on this assumption. Wherever men met men, they never had any doubt in this respect. All philosophers and all laymen agreed were unanimous in this belief. But in the middle of the 19th century, Karl Marx expanded a different view. According to Marx, the logical structure of mind is different with the members of different classes. The human mind does not find truth but ideologies. Ideologies seem true in the eyes of the members of the same class, but are meaningless in the eyes of members of other classes. Every class produces its own ideologies, which later are debunked by ideologies of other classes. In this way, Karl Marx stigmatized the philosophy of John Locke as a bourgeois philosophy, 
Later Marxians called Schopenhauer the philosopher of the rentier class and Nietzsche the philosopher of big business. Lenin, the founder of the Third International, and Friedrich Adler, the secretary-general of the Second International, investigated whether the physical theories of Mach are bourgeois or not. The Einstein theory of relativity is branded by some Bolsheviks as bourgeois and reactionary. In this lecture, Mises presented material that he eventually published in Omnipotent Government. In the 1932 debate in Dresden, Mises pointed out that any defense of the polylogistic hypothesis involves a self-contradiction, since the exchange of arguments only makes sense if the logical structure of the human mind is independent of social or racial class. A Marxist, and I understand by this term not only the members of a political party that swears by Marx, but all who appeal to Marx in their thinking concerning the sciences of human action, who condescends to discuss the scientific problem with people who are not comrades of his own class, has given up the first and most important principle of his theory. If thought is conditioned by the thinker's social existence, how can he understand me, and how can I understand him? If there is a bourgeois logic and a proletarian logic, how am I, the bourgeois, to come to an understanding with him, the proletarian? Whoever takes the Marxist point of view seriously must advocate a complete division between bourgeois and proletarian science. And the same is also true, mutatis mutandis, of the view of those who regard thought as determined by the race or the nationality of the thinker. The Marxists cannot be satisfied with separating classes in athletic contests with a bourgeois and a proletarian Olympics. He must demand this separation above all in scientific discussion. The fruitlessness of many of the debates that were conducted here in the Verein für Sozialpolitik, as well as in the Gesellschaft für Soziologie, are to be attributed more than anything else to the neglect of this principle, in my opinion. The position of dogmatic Marxism is wrong, but that of the Marxist who engages in discussions with representatives of what he calls bourgeois science is confused. The consistent Marxist does not seek to refute opponents whom he calls bourgeois. He seeks to destroy them physically and morally. He had only touched on this point, which he now regarded as fundamental, in a paper he wrote for Probleme der Wertlehre, the volume that served as a basis for the discussion in Dresden. In a paper he had written in preparation for the Dresden meeting, Mises had highlighted the wider significance of polylogism, characterizing it as a romantic revolt against logic and science, and pointing out that it does not limit itself to the sphere of social phenomena and the sciences of human action. It is a revolt against our entire culture and civilization. In Dresden, Emil Edra argued that this argument was considerably overblown, Mises was wrong in assuming that the being generates consciousness theory implied that every single instance of thought is ideology, in the Marxist sense of an intellectualization of economic interests. According to Leder, nobody claimed that there were no universally valid theories. Logic and mathematics certainly counted, but neither could it be denied that there were other disciplines, the basic categories of which were largely dependent on the historical situation, that is, on the social structure of the time and on the social position of the thinker. Leder went on, 
Now the question is whether economics belongs to the first category of sciences, which totally rely on pure intuition, reine Anschauung, and logic, or to the socially determined fields of knowledge in the sense of modern sociology, or, if you wish, in the sense of Marxism. Herr von Mises apparently shares the view of the physiocrats. The latter believed that the physiocratic theory was as obliging for each rational thinker as the theorem of Pythagoras. Herr von Mises apparently claims the same rank, the same validity for economic theory in its entire scope, and this is what I deny. It is true that economic theory has a kernel that is independent of historical economic developments, but this general or exact or pure theory, for which I feel affinities, is not the theory of economic action per se in all its historical phases. The substance of this theory is a narrow one. It essentially covers the static process or stationary circulation Kreislauf. It ultimately deduces all consequences from the principle of economizing, as applied to man in his dependency on nature. In his rejoinder, Mises pointed out that static economic theory did not merely apply to static processes, but especially to change. The word static did not mean that the subject of inquiry was a stationary economy. Rather, it referred to a specific method of analysis which studied the implications of a change of one datum, ceteris paribus, that is, under the assumption that all other data remained unchanged. But Mises still had not clarified his views about the epistemological character of economic science. This was the task to which he proceeded upon his return to Vienna, where he finished an essay on the task and scope of the science of human action. Mises planned to publish this piece as the introductory chapter of a new book on fundamental problems of economic analysis. The book would contain various essays he had published in the past five years in the fields of epistemology and value theory. The idea was to clarify the very foundations of economic science, not only by a general discussion of its philosophical character, but also by restating the core concepts of value and capital theory. The book would therefore contain both an introduction to economics from the point of view of the philosophy of science and actual economic analyses of value and of inconvertible capital. The first three chapters on epistemology consumed some 60% of the volume. The next four chapters dealt with value theory and the concluding essay was his contribution to the Verein Stuart Festschrift. Mises finished revising the manuscript over Christmas 1932 and on January 3, 1933, wrote to Gustav Fischer to propose the book for publication. Fischer did not believe the book would sell well, but agreed to publish it. By mid-April, Mises received the first copies of Grundprobleme der Nationalökonomie, Fundamental Problems of Economics. Almost three decades later, Mises' American student, George Heisman, produced a translation. The American edition eventually appeared under the somewhat different title of Epistemological Problems of Economics. His new essay on The Task and Scope of the Science of Human Action was Chapter 1. It would be the keystone of the system of economics Mises had been working on for years. Taking up Lederer's challenge, Mises argued that economic laws were true a priori on a par with the laws of logic and mathematics. To the present day, this has remained one of his most controversial tenets, but the debate resulted, in most cases, from a misunderstanding of his position. 
20th century social scientists typically argued that science was always based on experience and that any proposition that was based instead on some arbitrary a priori principle was therefore not scientific. Mises agreed. He had been a proponent of a rigid fact orientation since his early years as a student. He had enthusiastically supported Max Weber in the controversy on value judgment, arguing that the proper sphere of science was the world as it is, not as it should be. Mises himself rigorously held to the notion that true science was always concerned with verifiable facts. So, why were his epistemological views controversial? Most other social theorists believed that the facts relevant for the social sciences could be known through observation-based methods of inquiry. Here Mises disagreed. In the tradition of Karl Menger's quest for empirical theory, he believed that economic theory describes facts of the real world such as the one that human beings make choices. Thus he insisted, For the purposes of science we must start from the action of the individual because this is the only thing of which we can have direct cognition. And he also stated, Science cannot proceed otherwise than discursively. Its starting points must have as much certainty as human knowledge is capable of, and it must go on from there, making logical deductions step by step. It can begin as an a prioristic science with propositions necessary to thought that find their support and warrant in apodictic evidence, or as an empirical science it can start with experience. But facts of this sort cannot be observed. It is impossible, for example, to look at choices, to smell them or touch them, Economics is not an empirical science in this sense, but it is a science nevertheless because the facts it deals with are true, even though they are unavailable to the human sensory apparatus. The proper method to analyze them is through discursive reasoning. Mises stressed again his conviction that economics is part of a more general social theory, and now he gave more precision to what this theory was all about. It was a theory of human action. The science of human action that strives for universally valid knowledge is the theoretical system whose hitherto best elaborated branch is economics. In all of its branches, this science is a priori, not empirical. Like logic and mathematics, it is not derived from experience, it is prior to experience. It is, as it were, the logic of action and deed. He went on to argue that the theory of human action ultimately coincides with the science of logic. Human thought serves human life and action. It is not absolute thought, but the forethought directed toward projected acts, and the afterthought that reflects upon acts done. Hence, in the last analysis, logic and the universally valid science of human action are one and the same. How did Mises address Lederer's argument that only a part of economic theory was universally valid, namely the aspect that dealt with the equilibrium relationship between human action and nature? Mises argued that universal validity does not imply that all laws of human action apply in every single instance of human behavior. Rather, it means that a law applies whenever the conditions specified by it are given. Whether or not they are is an empirical question, but once this is stipulated, the law holds true on a priori grounds. For example, we are unable to grasp the concept of economic action and of economy without implying in our thought the concept of economic quantity relations and the concept of an economic good. 
only experience can teach us whether or not these concepts are applicable to anything in the conditions under which our life must actually be lived. Only experience tells us that not all things in the external world are free goods. However, it is not experience but reason which is prior to experience that tells us what is a free and what is an economic good. Some of the empirical conditions under which human action can take place are universally given. For example, all human actions occur during the passage of time, and all acting persons age in the course of time. Other empirical conditions, such as the use of money, are of a more contingent nature. But however universal or contingent these conditions are, it remains true that once they are given, they cause certain objective effects, which are the subject matter of the a priori theory of human action. Because the theory of human action does not rely on data gathered through the senses, but rather on a priori facts that we come to know through discursive reasoning, it cannot possibly be verified or refuted by experience gained exclusively through observations. Mises highlighted the practical implications of this fundamental epistemological fact. Human action always confronts experience as a complex phenomenon that first must be analyzed and interpreted by a theory before it can even be set in the context of an hypothesis that could be proved or disproved. Hence the vexatious impasse created when supporters of conflicting doctrines point to the same historical data as evidence of their correctness. The statement that statistics can prove anything is a popular recognition of this truth. No political or economic program, no matter how absurd, can, in the eyes of its supporters, be contradicted by experience. Whoever is convinced a priori of the correctness of his doctrine can always point out that some condition essential for success according to his theory has not been met. Each of the German political parties seeks in the experience of the Second Reich confirmation of the soundness of its program. Supporters and opponents of socialism draw opposite conclusions from the experience of Russian Bolshevism. Disagreements concerning the probative power of concrete historical experience can be resolved only by reverting to the doctrines of the universally valid theory, which are independent of all experience. Every theoretical argument that is supposedly drawn from history necessarily becomes a logical argument about pure theory apart from all history. Twilight in Vienna The discussion of the epistemology of economics was continued in Mises' private seminar in Vienna, where his views found far more opposition and more competently offered than in Dresden. Several members of the seminar, including Felix Kaufmann and Robert Welder, were also members of a discussion group of the positivistic philosophers, the Vienna Circle. These men brought a completely different perspective to the problems, and the clash of their views with the opinion of the seminar director was a highlight in the history of those gatherings. Much of the fame that later accrued to the seminar through the recollections of its prominent participants was due to the methodological debates in the last years of its existence. Mises characterized them as vivid, even outright passionate. The brilliance of the discussions in the academic year 1933-1934 happily combined with the presence of a significant number of distinguished guests. Mises was at this point more than just a well-known author. He was a recognized leader among German-speaking economists. After his election to the board of the Verein für Sozialpolitik in early 1929, the private seminar 
attracted an increasing number of guests, especially from foreign countries. Alvin Hansen came in 1929, Frank Knight for a stint in May 1930, Carver, Batson, and others in 1931, but the absolute high point was in 1933 to 1934, when four scholars from Japan, Ichitani, Midutani, Otaka, Takemura, plus Hugh Gateskull, Ragnar Norske, Karl Pribram, François Pirou, Gerhard Titner, and Emmanuel Winternitz, to name just the more prominent guests, attended the sessions. During his sojourn in Vienna, Hugh Gateskull set out to make a new translation of Bimbavec's Capital and Interest, which was still available only in a translation from the first edition. Mises later recalled that other English economists, too, were ready to shoulder the task, and even publication was not a problem in these days when the public interest in Austrian economics was at its peak in Great Britain. They abstained from this undertaking because they expected that Gateskull would execute his plan. But the young man in Mises's Vienna seminar never finished the job. Gateskull opted instead for an acceleration of his career in politics, becoming Minister of Fuel and Power, in the post-war British Labour government. On March 9th, Mises gave the opening talk to a debate that would fill the next three months and which more narrowly concerned the question of whether economics was an a-prioristic science of human action. Mises presented his case and also addressed the position of Kaufmann, who held that economic science was based on potentially fictional stipulations arrived at through conventions. Mises' paper highlights the reason why his position was not very convincing to the other participants. More than in his previous written essays, he stressed that economic theory was an a priori discipline because it could not be verified or refuted in laboratory experiments. This line of argument was rather unsatisfactory because it seemed to draw epistemological conclusions from a mere technical difficulty. At any rate, it was unpersuasive to the next four presenters. Felix Kaufmann, Robert Welder, Erich Schiff, Oskar Morgenstern. In the wake of the economic crisis in 1931, the Christian Socialists had proposed a coalition government to the Socialists under Bauer. When Bauer refused, voters shifted increasingly to the Austrian National Socialists. Christian Socialists now believed that the best way to hold back the tide of National Socialism was to use authoritarian methods to suppress opposition to the government. These tactics were decisively intensified after the National Socialists rose to power in Germany on January 30, 1933. Many observers expected that Austria too would now fall into their hands, especially since they supported their Austrian branch organization through media campaigns and terror bombings against the Austrian government and its allies. Desperate in its quest to stop the Nazi tide, and keep Austria independent, the government, under Engelbert Olfus, concluded an alliance with fascist Italy, but also resorted to authoritarian methods in its domestic policies. The alliance with Italy was cemented in the Protocols of Rome, signed on March 17, 1934. Dolfus abolished the Parliamentary Republic, using a suitable opportunity on March 4, 1933, when all three presidents of the Parliament stepped down in protest against a questionable procedure. The last of the three officially convened the Parliament for March 15th, but now Dolfus stepped in, convinced the Christian Socialist Parliamentary faction to support his coup d'etat, 
and sent in the police to prevent a consolidation of the pro-German Social Democrats and German nationalists on March 15. In the course of the next few months, Dollfuss also abolished the Communist Party and the Austrian branch of the German Nazi Party. Henceforth, he ruled dictatorially on the basis of an emergency law passed in 1917. On May 20th, he established the Vaterländische Front, Patriotic Front, to rally all forces loyal to the Austrian state. Dollfuss proclaimed at a rally on September 11th, 1933, that his fatherland would now become the socialist, Christian, and German state Austria, based on its estates and with a strong authoritarian leadership. Mises became a member on March 1st, 1934, at the Patriotic Front's Kammerbranch office. Membership was probably mandatory for all employees of public and semi-public organizations. Mises's membership card, number 282632, can now be found in the Grove City Archive. He was also a member of the Werk Neues Leben, a subdivision of the Patriotic Front. Ideologically, the Dolfus regime relied on state-of-the-art Catholic political and social theory, as embodied in the writings of Otmar Spann and Pope Pius XI, both of whom glorified social order based on the respect of the professional stände or estates. Arguably, his true significance lay elsewhere. Historian Ernst Hoare presents Dolfus as the first and only statesman of the First Austrian Republic who consciously and explicitly reclaimed an Austrian nation as distinct from the German nation and who framed his policies accordingly. While Spann's views had a deep impact on the German-speaking world, his influence could not match Pius XI encyclical Quadragesimo Anno, 1931, which was a shot in the arm for the corporatist movement. As one of Mises' correspondents from Switzerland reported, young Catholic politicians were entirely imbued with its ideas, even more than those of Ottmar Spann. Arguably, these young politicians gave the papal encyclical a stronger statist reading than was really warranted by its contents. Mises would later acknowledge that the man who wrote the first draft of the encyclical, Jesuit pater Or von Nellbräuning, was one of the few German economists who in the interwar period advocated economic freedom. In February 1934, the socialists rose one last time against the Dollfuss dictatorship when the police tried to seize a social democratic arms depot in the provincial town of Linz. Dollfuss had their revolt bloodily repressed and lost no time using the opportunity to oust the social democrats from parliament. The leftover deputies then voted for a new constitution that in its essential lines returned to the pre-1907 constitutional model. Members of parliament were no longer elected by universal suffrage, but appointed from among members of the major estates, such as landowners, clerics, labor unions, industrialists, etc. The new constitution was proclaimed on May 1st, 1934. On July 25th, 1934, Engelbert Dollfuss was murdered in the wake of an attempted nationalist-socialist coup d'etat. German troops then marched on to the northern border of Austria and were called back only because Mussolini had concentrated his army on the southern border, pledging to guarantee the country's independence. From that day on, Austria's fate lay in the hands of the Italian government. 
Italy changed its alliances in the autumn of 1936 when France and Great Britain sanctioned the Italian invasion and annexation of Abyssinia. The new alliance between Hitler and Mussolini spelled the doom for Austrian independence. In the course of these events, life in Vienna became increasingly unpleasant for Mises. As in the First World War, there was once again an official government censor. For some years, Fritz Machlup had written weekly editorials for the Neue Freie Presse. He stopped in May 1934 when it became pointless to write on the few topics still free from censorship. At that point, Machlup received a Rockefeller stipend to go to the United States, following in the footsteps of Verglin and Habler. Now Mises himself would leave, to the great regret of his circle of friends and colleagues, who bid him farewell at the high point of their many years in his private seminar. Felix Kaufmann rhymed one last time. Farewell to Professor Mises. What is going to become of the Mises Kais in the year that's coming? Geneva can't for all suffice. My fingers won't stop drumming. The question will not leave me be. This seminar means everything to me. Das Mises Kreislied. Liebe Kinder, weil heute Freitag ist, gibt es Mises Privatseminar. Und dort gehe ich hin, auch wenn ein Maitag ist. Süß und duftend wie keiner noch war. Denn der Blütenduft muss vergehen. Doch die Wahrheit, die bleibt bestehen. Und die Wahrheit findest du im Mises Kreis. Jeden Abend Zehnter und Scheffelweis. Fängt man richtig zu streiten erst an, denn Debatten, die haben dort Anschan. Ich gehe heute Abend zum Mises hin, weil ich so gern dort bin. Man spricht ja nirgends so schon in Wien über Wirtschaft, Gesellschaft und Sinn. Und willst du recht das Verstehen verstehen, musst atupri du zu Mises auch gehen, weil man das nirgends sonst deutlich weiß als nur im Mieseskreis. Ist auch ein Problem noch so konsistent, traut sich gar nicht zu Tiere herein, denn es weiß sehr wohl, dass Gefahr es rennt, aufgelost binnen kurzem zu sein. Sind auch noch so hart manche Nisse, knackt man doch sie durch kluge Schlisse, bis die Kerne uns auf der Zunge zergehen, wie sonst nur noch die Sissenpalinen, deren glittiger Geist offeriert, dass das Schweigen nicht gar zu schwer wird. Refrain Ist der Geist und Zenur mit Weisheit voll, flieht ihr Magen sich traurig und leer, doch erhalt er bald seinen Einfuhrzoll, denn wir gehen in den grünen Anker. Dort ist die Fröhlichkeit unser Motto, bei Spaghetti und bei Risotto, wie die Zeit vergeht, keiner hat's gedacht. Denn auf einmal schlagt es schon Mitternacht, doch jetzt kommt die genialste Idee, man geht noch in das Kunstlercafé. Refrain Manchmal denkt man sich, hat denn einen Sinn, diese ganze Problemspalterei. Draußen fließt derweil froh das Leben hin und selbst ist man so wenig dabei. War's nicht klüger, im Strom zu schwimmen, als die Wasserkraft zu bestimmen? Ließ man nicht besser alles Denken sein, lebte einfach froh in den Tag hinein und genosse des Augenblicks Rausch. Doch man weiß ja, hier gibt's keinen Tausch. Refrain The Song of the Mises Circle Come and gather all around, it's Friday, time for Mises' Privatseminar. I'll be there for sure, even if it's May, and the day is the sweetest thus far. Oh, the fragrance fades, it is certain, but truth you'll find knows no curtain. In the Mises Kreis, it's always center stage. Buckets full of truth remain the latest rage, 
and when you begin to debate, you know that the hour will grow late. You'll find me with Mises tonight, tonight. No longer do I need to roam. Society, economy, and truth, that's right, are debated, defended. I'm home. And if you desire for Steins made clear, at all cost you must come, get yourself here, for clarity, wisdom, and truth entice, here at the Mises Kreis. Do you know a problem full of nasty quirks? Come escorted to Mises' door. It will know full well this time that danger lurks, as it's whittled right down to its core. Many shells, of course, know the same fate, nuts so hard to crack, but at this rate they will melt on tongues that know deductive prose, like the chocolate creams our friend so kindly chose, making silence a happy refrain. But now let us all sing again. Refrain. Ten o'clock comes round and wisdom's filled our minds, but our bodies demand ever more. That green anchor calls, and here our stomachs find import tariffs to even the score. Here's where ear is our motto. Have spaghetti and eat risotto. No one ever dreams how fast the time can race. Midnight rings. We take our favorite place in that nice little Kunstler Café. An ingenious end to the day. Refrain. Oh, the time it comes when we must question why. Is such questioning really that smart? Life goes on and on, it just keeps flowing by, and we all play a very small part. We could swim along, take no notice of the tide's direction, the world's focus. Should we not keep these thoughts at bay, push our cares aside, and relish what's today? And yet there's no trade-off at hand. Somehow we must take a stand.'